your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Kevin Mitchell. Kevin is an associate professor of genetics and neuroscience at Trinity College Dublin. His scientific work has aimed to understand the genetic programs specifying the wiring of the brain and its relevance to variation in human faculties, especially psychiatric and neurological disease, as well as perceptual conditions like synesthesia. We spent much of our discussion talking about things related to the so-called nature versus nurture dichotomy, such as the extent to which genes and the environment contribute to brain development and variation in the structure of our brains and our psychology. We talked about the role that randomness plays into this on top of the role played by genetics and the environment. This included discussion of things like identical twins and the extent to which they can actually differ from one another and what causes that. We talked about how much of what's genetically specified for our brains and our nervous system is the capacity for experience-dependent change itself. We got into perceptual differences between people, such as color perception and color blindness. We talked about multimodal sensory integration, the brain's capacity to integrate and combine information from multiple sensory channels and how this contributes to the structure of our conscious perceptions. We talked about synesthesia, a condition where individuals have involuntary experiences in one sensory modality when another sensory pathway is stimulated, such as people who see colors or shapes when they hear particular sounds. We talked about neuropsychiatric conditions like autism and schizophrenia and how genetics and the environment and random developmental noise all contribute to the development of those things. And towards the end, we also talked about things like agency and free will, which is the subject of Dr. Mitchell's upcoming book. As always, if you enjoy the content on this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. A great way to stay up to date and know what kind of topics and guests are coming up and learn about research and other interesting content that is relevant to the topics I discuss on the show or that I'm producing either in the form of writing on my Substack. Check out my free weekly newsletter at mindandmatter.substack.com. On my Substack, you'll also find all of the audio and video versions of the podcast. You'll find the long-form writing that I put up from time to time that integrates some of the things I discuss on different shows with different guests. And you can also check out the video version of the podcast on YouTube. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Kevin Mitchell. Dr. Kevin 
Mitchell, thank you for joining me. That's my pleasure. Can you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what your scientific background is? Yeah. So I'm um, Associate Professor of Genetics and Neuroscience here at Trinity College in Dublin. And my background is in, well, I started in genetics actually as a student here in this department and then um, did a PhD in developmental neurobiology at Berkeley and um, studying how the nervous system develops. So the question there really was, um, how are the sort of the the instructions in the genome um, decoded through the process of development to actually wire up a nervous system, which is really um, complex process, obviously. And we were working in in a very, very simple um, sort of model system, which was the embryo, the fruit fly, trying to figure out, could we find the genes that encode proteins that tell nerves to go this way or that way, Mm. basically. And um, so that was great. And I did a a postdoc in a similar field in mice, so moving organism, but still asking the same question. Um, Obviously, the mouse brain, which is where we were looking, is much more complicated. Um, and then moved back here in 2002 and, and set up my own group. And we were doing that kind of mouse work. Um, and started. I started to get interested in questions of the, the applicability of that knowledge. So if we could figure out the, the basic sort of genetics of how the brain gets wired, um, the, the idea that maybe mutations in those genes uh, could, could lead to some kind of outcome. Um, and it turns out that they can lead to things like psychiatric disorders and um, epilepsy and autism and conditions like that. So that got me into thinking about humans and, and um, working with some colleagues here in psychiatric genetics and psychology. Interesting. Yeah, I think a lot of what we'll talk about is going to be to do with you know the extent to which um, what we what we do and who we become and how we behave is is determined by nature by things that are intrinsic and outside of our control like like our genes yeah. versus to what extent it's due to to nurture as they say or to what extent our environment and our culture and our experiences shape uh, how we develop and and what we become and you know people have been talking about the nature versus nurture dichotomy since. People have been thinking about anything, and yeah. then many, many words, and a lot of blood has been spilt over over where people uh, sit and how they think about this dichotomy. How do you, how do you think about the the idea of nature versus nurture? Is that a useful construct, or is it potentially misleading in some way? Yeah, I mean, I think both actually, in that it's useful in in a very technical sense in the field of genetics, but it it, it um, can easily be uh, sort of misunderstood. Um, and, and misapplied in, a, in unfortunate ways. So within genetics, what you can ask, so, so if you look at uh, uh, you know, a range of organisms in a species, there's always some variation between them. Um, and you can ask a question, what contributes to the variation that we see uh, you know, across members of a species? Which, first of all, is just a different question from what makes an individual the way they are entirely, mm-hmm. right? So... If you, for example, we're interested in variation in height, we're not asking the question what makes humans about so high generally, right? Mm. We'd be asked what's the, what what contributes to the difference in height between you and me, say. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that's already a very specific question, and it's important to realize what it is you're asking a question about, just really about that variation. Now, if you're asking that question, um, it's necessarily a question about the population. Mm. Right? It's, it's actually not a question about me. Right? It's not where does my height come from. It's what causes variation in height across the population. And that's usually um, within the field of genetics. You can 
you can think about that and you can dissociate causes or um, factors that contribute to that variation. And so people have been doing that, uh, you know, practically in animal breeding and plant breeding for forever, basically. So um, if they want to know, you know, say they're working with cattle and they want to know how um, whether they should breed for some particular trait, say how much milk they produce. Mm -hmm. Well, then it's good to know how genetic that trait is, right? There's no point trying to breed for something if the variation is just random or it's just environmental. Mm -hmm. So they, they have developed a whole sort of framework to try and figure out for any trait like that, how much of the variation you see is due to genetic differences in your population, how much is due to environmental factors. And of course, in animal breeding, plant breeding, you can control both the genes and the environment and the way you breed and so on. Um, so it's 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 perfectly valid to to try and dissociate those sort of causes of the variance in a population. The problem is if if you think that you can do that in an individual, because those those different factors that make me the way I am, right? So that make me so the, the height that I am, say. Um, there's definitely a genetic contribution to that, and there's definitely environmental contributions and, and my own personal history and and so on. But they can't be teased apart. It just becomes a kind of a nonsense question. It's not, you know, there's not 40% of my height came from my genes. It, yeah, yeah. Just, it, it just doesn't mean anything mm -hmm. to apply it to an individual. So, um, you know, so the typical usage of, of nature versus nurture in, in humans, really, if it's about variation across the population, then I think it's fine. If it's about, if it's applied to an individual, then you're just misapplying the concept and unfortunately it does get misapplied that way mm -hmm. yeah and, and you know i think a lot of people um a lot of non-scientists at least um they they get confused when they think about things being either due to genetics or due to the environment and especially when you're thinking about genetics with respect to the nervous system so much so much of it is experience dependent you know the, the genes and the neurons and all these things are hardwired to be changeable and plastic yeah, in response yeah, yeah. to the environment. And so it, you, you really do get a blurring of the lines there. Absolutely. And I, I mean, for me, the key sort of, um, you know, concept to understand how genotypes, that is, you know, our, our genetic makeup relates to our phenotypes, which is our whole sort of pattern of traits that we express, is that that's a, that, that's a trajectory, right? It's not a fixed, static, linear, direct relationship. Mm -hmm. It's not like a blueprint that says, if your gene is like this, then this part of you will be like that. That's not the relationship, right? So it, it's more that the, the, the genome encodes rules and processes of development um, th that collectively will channel development into a kind of a range. But that's very much a, an ongoing trajectory. And that's true, especially true for the nervous system, because as you said, the point of the nervous system is to change in response to experience, right? Mm -hmm. That learning ability to learn is one of the huge benefits of what nervous systems get you. So, um, yeah, so we come pre-wired to, um, uh, I mean, pre-wired in, in ways that, that are different between people, but also pre-wired to respond to experience. Mm -hmm. um, now, it's a little more subtle than that because there's variation in how we respond to experience, right? So, so there's this interplay. It's not like the genes do their work and then the experience takes over. Even in how we respond to things, genetic differences are still having an influence there. It's just an influence that continues to sort of manifest itself through life as we 
as we learn from from our environment, from our, our experiences, we develop habits. Um, we we really develop our character, and that's absolutely an emergent kind of a thing. It's not just set by genes. Um, it's not just you know driven from the outside by experience. It's an interaction of those things through time, and it's mm-hmm. the through time bit that is the key concept i think to to grasp Mm -hmm. yeah one more thing i want to dwell on in this area for people that don't really have uh, a technical background in genetics is you know you often hear people talk about genes um, as if the genes are for specific traits and for specific or for specific diseases right so you might hear people talk about a gene for height or the genes for autism or the genes for that this or that what can you unpack for people what what are genes? Let's just start there. Yeah. What exactly are they encoding and how does that relate to whether that, those are reasonable ways to think about yeah, it? Yeah, these are huge, huge questions. But I'm, I'm glad you asked because the, the concept of a gene is very um, easily misunderstood because it has multiple meanings. Mm-hmm. So the original concept you know, from Mendel was uh, he, he could see that there were differences between his pea plants that he was working on and some of them had like you know, smooth kernels, and some of them had wrinkled ones, and some of them were yellow or green, or the plants were tall or short or whatever. And um, in in the traits that he chose to work on, well, first of all, he was quite selective about the kinds of things he worked on. Like he could see that you know the height of the plant was a continuous trait, like height in in humans, whereas the yellow versus green was seemed to be dichotomous. Mm. It, it wasn't a range of color. It was either yellow or green. Right? So those are kind of unusual traits. But anyway, he could see by, by breeding plants and looking at the inheritance patterns that, that there must be something that was being passed on from one plant to the next. So put you know into the seeds, basically through the, the pollen and the egg, um, there must be some physical thing that determined whether they were going to turn out to have yellow kernels or, or not pod peas, whatever, um, uh, or green ones, right? Yeah. So he just called that a gene. And he didn't know what it was made of. Uh, he didn't know anything else. He just inferred the existence of it from from the inheritance patterns that, that he saw. So, um, so from the get-go, a gene was a, a unit of inheritance. Okay, so if we hold that concept in mind and then we get to uh, molecular biology and understanding of what genes are made of, um, then we can come back to explain what that is. So, um, so it was known that uh, you know that that the genetic there must be some genetic material that's f- physical stuff that's passed on. And when you look in cells, you can see all kinds of different stuff, mm-hmm. and some of that is in the nucleus of the cell. Um, these bodies called chromosomes, um, which it turns out are made of of DNA and and protein actually they're sort of packed up in protein, um, so people didn't know whether the DNA or the proteins was the genetic material, but eventually it was figured out that it's, it's the DNA that does it. Now we know that DNA is made of this sequence of chemical bases, and it's that sequence that encodes the information. But um, but it does that in two different ways. So if we think about the the genome of a pea plant, it it encodes somehow the information to develop as a pea plant mm-hmm. and not as a potato plant, right? So um, so somehow in the whole genome, there's encoded the, the information for a pea plant to emerge. Um, and basically the science of developmental biology is trying to figure out what that relationship is. But if you look at the, um, at the genome, really what's, what's sort of directly encoded is proteins. 
So all of our cells have, you know, they're all the enzymes, um, structural kind of proteins and stuff. Uh, all the sort of machinery of the cell is mostly made of, of proteins that do the work. And um, we have about 20,000 genes that code for about that many, well, actually many more proteins than that. And um, so, so now if we think from a molecular biology point of view, okay, we've got a, a, a cell or an organism that's going to develop a certain way. It's making all these different proteins. Some of the um, tissues of the organism will express some of those proteins uh, and not. So in us, for example, we have some proteins made in liver cells, different set made in skin cells, different set made in different nerve cells and so on. Okay, so that's the molecular biology view and the developmental biology view. And then the question is, what does that relate? How does that relate to this idea of a unit of inheritance? Mm -hmm. And that gets back to what we were talking about earlier, which is that the idea that genetics is really about variation. So now we're trying. It, it turns out that if you have a gene for yellow versus green, really what that is is a mutation, mm -hmm. right? It's a genetic variation in some gene in the p genome that encodes some protein, and maybe it's uh, a mutation that, say, deactivates that protein, so it just doesn't work. So now you've got two types of peas uh, or, that can inherit this, this gene um, that either say it works or it doesn't work. And if it's working right, maybe they develop green, and if it's not working right, maybe they develop yellow. So a gene as a unit of inheritance then is really uh, a genetic variant or a mutation. So if we're talking about a gene for a disease, right, say a gene for cystic fibrosis or for Huntington's disease or something like that, you know, the purpose of the gene is not to make people diseased. Really what that, what that is is shorthand for a, a genetic mutation that has this effect mm. of causing this disease. So, um, of course, some genetic variants will cause a disease like that. Many of them don't have any effect. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of them that just cause some variation that's that's sort of benign, right? Yeah, and there's yeah. just sort of part of the normal variation, like in height, for yeah. example. So, um, yeah, okay. So that's the broad scope. I hope that um, sets oh, the yeah. scene. No, I think that's great. And I mean, the other thing I would love to get you talking about too is it's really easy in my experience for people to think like um, – think that basically like there's one gene for one trait, one yeah. one gene for one trait. So when we think about any trait, but I think height is a good example to dwell on, you know, my understanding is that most of these traits that we're interested in studying, whether or not it's just normal variation or it's a disease, there's actually many, many genes, each of which makes a small contribution to yeah. that trait. So why is that? And to what extent is that true? That's So that's absolutely true. For most traits we look at, height, like you said, is a good example. So um effectively so you have the the human genome in this case right so it encodes uh, making an organism up that turns out to be about so high um which is a, there's a whole interesting question about why why so high how's mm -hmm. that you know how is growth stopped how's that encoded um but whatever it is so you've got tons of, of different genes all interacting in the in the developing organism like i said there's not it's not a blueprint it's not one gene corresponds to one bit of the organism it's, it's a program of development that plays out um, with, with all these thousands of genes interacting in that process. So it's really a great big dynamical system. And um, over, over evolution, so part of the, what happens in that system, once the proteins are made from the DNA, they 
they kind of jitter around, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they diffuse, right? It's a really noisy environment at a, a molecular level. So the genome can't control that, and it, it has no way to um, to really determine where those things should go after they're made. So um, so it's a problem for the genome it, that has to be uh, it has to solve this problem to make an organism within a viable range despite all this noisiness and the what evolution has done is build in lots of robustness right so there's all these proteins they're all sort of doing the same work if maybe there's a bit less of them here there might be a bit more of another one to compensate so because of it's a, it's a dynamical system it, it's very sort of fluid and a, a, a adaptive through that um sort of it's a self-organizing system right? mm -hmm. so now, paradoxically, because it's robust to this molecular variation that's sort of unavoidable, the consequence of that is it's actually robust to little genetic variations. Mm. So you can get little mutations that happen, not the big ones that really break the system, just ones that cause a little bit of variation in the system. And actually, the system is like, yeah, that's fine. I can deal with that. I'm a big self-organizing thing. I can totally buffer the effect of this little thing um, and still remain within a viable range. So what happens then over time is that um, genetic variation just accumulates in the population. Every time we make a sperm cell or an egg cell, we're copying the DNA, and some copy errors just creep in. And so as a result of that, then genetic variation inevitably accumulates in a population um, on, on, uh, and therefore just contributes to variation in, in the outcome. It's not possible for the genome to encode the outcome really, really specifically. Mm -hmm. First of all, there's just not enough information in information theoretical sense in the genome to encode everything about the phenotype of a human being. Um, but secondly, that variation in the, in, in the population is, uh, is unavoidable. So um, we're, we're never going to get, uh, you know, identical clones um, out in a population because of this genetic variation. So, so, Basically, you know, a couple things that are interesting here. One, if I'm hearing you correctly, even if you could uh, somehow uh, hold the environment perfectly constant, what you're saying is you would still end up with genetic variation yeah. because there is this um, stochasticity that exists at the molecular level and it's just completely unavoidable. Well, yeah, so there's two things there. One is um, that, uh, you know, for traits like height across a, across a, a species, um, if there's if there's no need for natural selection to really narrowly um, channel that trait into very specific values, mm -hmm. then it won't, yeah. right? If, if, if genetic variation, if, if phenotypic variation is tolerated, then genetic variation will accumulate that, that contributes to that. Um, so if we think about the genetic, what we call the genetic architecture of a trait like height across a population, it's characterized by all these genetic variations that just exist in the population and they can be quite common so it might be you know that at a particular place in the genome say 70 percent of the time it's an a you know the chemical base a and 30 percent it's a c or something like that and maybe the a version is associated with a tiny st statistical increase in height and then there's thousands and thousands of those and so each of us has a, a distribution we fall somewhere on the distribution um um, across the population. So you might have just more of the ones by chance that make you a little bit taller than average or shorter. Um, so that's the architecture of those traits. Now, on top of that, 
even if you had an identical genome, uh, this developmental variability will still be in play, right? So even identical twins are not exactly the same height mm-hmm. as each other. They're obviously very, very similar, much more similar to any two other people, right? Which shows the genetic effect. Um, but even, yeah, raised in this, you know, as close an environment as you can get, um, they, there's still going to be some phenotypic variation. And we, you know, we this has been known for uh, centuries for people doing, um, you know, or, well, at least a century for people doing yeah, genetic experiments in model organisms like fruit flies or um, fish or mice or all kinds of things, plants uh, where where they're clonal, mm-hmm. right? So they're yeah. all genetically identical. Um, but, you know, we're just used to seeing there's some variation still between them, even in the most highly controlled lab environments, mm-hmm. right? So, um, yeah, so that developmental variation is unavoidable. And it's... Um, it's a third source of variance that's really overlooked, I think, because the, the the sort of traditional framing of nature versus nurture has been translated into genes versus environment. Right, right. Um, but that suggests that genetic variation is the only thing that contributes to what we would call nature or mm-hmm. our you know innate predispositions uh, or or phenotypes, um, which is not right. There's a third source, which is just developmental variability that's doesn't come from anywhere yeah it's just in it's just by the nature of the system has some some randomness to it yeah and and i think it's an important point that that people often overlook non-scientists especially even scientists sometimes that part of the nature side of this you know when we think about the nature side we we tend to naturally think about the genes and and we think about them in a way that's very sort of specific and concrete and fixed but part of the nature side of the equation is this noise and variation that's just inherently there yeah absolutely and so you know the genome encodes a potential individual uh, but the actual individual that emerges is like sort of one run of, of that program that has some randomness to it so like a, doing a you know a marble run type yeah of thing. yeah yeah um, and sometimes it'll bounce over there and sometimes it'll bounce over here for no reason otherwise you know that there's just some randomness that can't be controlled mm-hmm. um within there and so we're used to seeing that um expressed in this um i guess you could say quantitative variation in traits like the quantitative difference in height between uh, identical twins um Although occasionally you can see it in quite dichotomous outcomes that still are kind of probabilistic. Mm-hmm. So, for example, handedness is a, is a good example. Mm. So, um, on average, about 10% of people are um, left-handed. And it um, and usually strongly so. You know, you're usually either strongly left-handed or right-handed. There's some mixed bit sort of in the middle. But um, if you uh, have a, a, a history of left-handedness in your family, say if your parents are left-handed, then you have a higher probability of being left-handed, but it's still a probability. Mm-hmm. And even in identical twins, you can often get one of them left-handed, one of them right-handed. Mm-hmm. So um, in a sense, the, what, what seems to happen is that there's some point in development where it can kind of either be channeled one direction or another. And if there's some little bit of variation at some point, it's just noisy randomness, it, it may just push the system to kind of go down this channel versus the, versus this one um, and then end up in because there's sort of self-reinforcing um, aspects of that the the, the further development along mm-hmm. each of those channels then you end up with these dichotomous outcomes and the reason you know that you would have that for handedness is that it's it's important to be either left or right handed yes, yes right to eat and and you know it may be due to the the, um, the need for fine motor control 
to be localized within one hemisphere just so that it's fast mm-hmm. uh, and you don't you're not having to send messages back and forth for example yeah is this so is this the concept of canalization yeah so yeah. it's a it's a term that came from um, a guy named Conrad Waddington and he has this beautiful um, sort of visual metaphor of this of a ball rolling down a, a, a kind of an undulating landscape but it, it it could roll one way or another at certain points. Um, and yeah, I mean, canalization is not the most elegant term, but the idea is of a canal, yeah. right? Yeah. It runs into a canal or a channel. There might be multiple possibilities, but you kind of get locked into one because yeah. it's not useful to have sort of half of each. Yeah, exactly. And there can be sometimes where it's it's not so important whether you're left or right-handed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in fact, we don't really know why in humans there's a bias, right? If you look in other animals, they're off, they often have a preference. Even rats have a, a paw preference. But there's no bias in the population. It's like 50-50. Mm. So we don't know the answer to that. But the important thing is to do one or the other, mm-hmm. um, not something in the middle, um, for that phenotype at least. But it's a good example of a, um, a dichotomous outcome where the inheritance really is a probability. You're yeah. not, you, you don't inherit being left-handed. You inherit a probability of being left-handed. Um, and actually, you see the same thing with the risk of a lot of... Um, disorders or, or conditions, psychiatric conditions, for example, um, you inherit a risk of developing, say, something like schizophrenia. And we can, you know, car- we can we can measure that risk or quantify it, statistically speaking. Um, and for example, if, if you have a, a um, an identical twin who has schizophrenia, then your statistical risk of being diagnosed with schizophrenia is about 50%. percent mm-hmm. right? Now, if you look at the offspring of, of two twins, one of whom has schizophrenia and one of whom doesn't, the risk of schizophrenia in their offspring is exactly the same. Mm. It doesn't matter whether the person actually expressed the, that probability that as a phenotype or not. They're passing on the probability, and and um, and it can be expressed then in in, in the offspring. And there's so there's lots of phenotypes that are like that. It's a probabilistic yeah. relationship that plays out through development. Yeah, it's really remarkable when you realize this is true, like I think what you just said, um, two identical twins, identical genomes, essentially identical environments that they've grown up in. And despite the fact that schizophrenia is strongly genetic, technically speaking, um, in, in terms of um, it's, you know how much of it is due to um, inherited factors, you can still have an identical twin, one of which has it, one of which doesn't. And yeah. you've still got you know, a 50% or whatever odds of, of producing a child that does or doesn't. And to me, what's then most remarkable is whether or not you express that in part, in large part, is due to some of that developmental noise. Yeah. Well, and, and so there's a... We think it is, right? Okay, so there's what I want to say, I guess, is that it, it's often been assumed that whatever isn't explained by genetics must be explained by environment. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to things like psychiatric disorders, people have spent a lot of time looking for yep, environmental yep. factors. And this harkens back to the, you know, the early days of, of, of psychoanalysis and so on, when it was just assumed it was an environmental experiential factor, typically blaming, you know, the mother in some way for um you know, causing their child to to become schizophrenic or autistic or, or whatever the case might be. Um, and so people have looked really exhaustively for that kind of experiential effect or for systematic environmental factors that might contribute to these conditions. And there, there's a few sort of hints out there, but they're, you know, they tend to be quite small mm-hmm. statistical risk factors, not enough to explain this non-genetic component of variance. So... Um, for me, 
the 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 inference that actually the developmental variation can contribute to that is, is first of all supported by the just sort of exclusion right you know yeah, it's like yeah. we're not finding these environmental factors um plus for example there's no there's no effect of the shared family environment mm. so you can do these twin studies or adoption studies um and see um you know look at the risk of say something like schizophrenia and in adoption studies it just goes with your biological relatives right do whether whether they have schizophrenia or not that's the only family relationship that matters it doesn't matter if you were raised in a uh, you know adopted into a family where say one of your adoptive parents has schizophrenia but you have no increased risk and if you're adopted away from a family where one of your parents had schizophrenia into some other family you have no decreased risk mm. right? so it the, the family environment is just not a factor yeah, yeah. in in contributing to who gets these conditions or not right generally speaking um so so the idea that there would be other factors that are kind of idios more idiosyncratic to me is a bit of an appeal to you know there's, there's no reason why um an idiosyncratic experience would affect you if a systematic one doesn't there's no there's just no logic to that right mm -hmm. um so so for me there's a, on the on that basis there's a good reason to think that developmental variation is making a big contribution there the trouble is like experimentally because you're look it's randomness it's super hard to measure right, or right. control for or anything it's it's basically everything you have left after you control for everything you can yeah <laughs> um, and, and so that that makes it very challenging to really um definitively say it must be developmental variation but to me it's a good bet that there's a big con contribution there yeah and that makes sense to me there there's you know another interesting uh thing here that i like to think about which is you know scientists and non-scientists alike we like neat explanations we want to be able to identify those genes that contribute to the disease and those environmental factors yeah. and you know i think everyone likes to be in control no sure. one likes to be out of control and the idea that something is due to noise i think speaks to this sort of uh in instinct basically that we have that uh we want everything to be uh you know labeled and controlled and yeah. we don't we don't want our lives to be dictated at all by randomness yeah absolutely and i think this it's, it's, it's kind of an affront to say some some things are just due to chance and it doesn't feel very scientific mm -hmm. um it, it even offends people's sort of sensibilities in a deeper way because it you know sort of suggests well, there's a limit to the lawfulness of the universe or yeah, something, you yeah. know which i mean there may be actually <laughs> um but um but here the you know the the word that you hit on there was control and that's why people want to find these factors uh, they want to find the genetic factors or these systematic environmental risk factors that they think might exist in order to be able to control them and if the lesson that emerges from doing lots of this genetics and, and epidemiology is that there's a big component that is not explained by any of those things and that is therefore not controllable and never will be it's not a very comforting thought when it comes to conditions like that yeah. it means there's something we just won't be able to control right um there's a flip side to that when it comes to things like you know psychological traits and personality and what kind of things that make us who we are um in that there will always be a component to that that's inherently unpredictable in principle mm -hmm. not just in practice it's not just we have some limit to our genetic knowledge or understanding of how environment shapes these things there's just a, a, an inherently random bit that will never be predictable and you know in a sense there's something sort of nice about that that we're each completely uh, unique 
never to be repeated product of this idiosyncratic trajectory um, that that was unpredictable and actually uncontrollable from mm-hmm. the outset. Yeah. So like on, you know, sort of circling back to the topic of like how much of ourselves and, you know, I guess we can just we can think about people for most of our discussion. Yeah. Um, how much of ourselves is due to uh, nature, so to speak, you know, factors that are intrinsic to our being and that we don't choose or that aren't part of our cultural environment. When we think about, for example, identical twins, mm-hmm. same genome, um, they grow up in the same in utero environment, they grow up in the same family environment unless they're separated at birth. Yeah. Can you start to talk about some of the, tw- I know that many twin studies have been done. There's lots of fascinating stories there yeah, and a lot yeah. we've learned from them. But um, when we talk about identical twins, how similar are they on average? And what can you start to say about how much they can differ due to environmental differences? Yeah, yeah. So um, it de- the, the answer, like a lot of things, is it depends. And in this case, it depends on what kind of trait you're looking at. Right? Mm-hmm. So if you look at height, they tend to be very similar, right? So they tend to be within, you know, an inch or two um, in height, which is, uh, a, which is minor relative to the variation we see across the whole population, right? Mm-hmm. So so when we're saying how how similar, we're always comparing yeah, yeah. Uh, the variance we see between them uh, as a proportion of the variance we see across the whole uh, population. So um, now, if you go to something like you know psychological traits, then they can be very different from each other, um, and and there you're getting into a whole different problem because you have to say, well, if I'm going to put a number on that i need to put a measure on this trait right Mm -hmm. i need to measure how similar they are to each other in something like extroversion or conscientiousness or um honesty or bravery or kindness or you know and some of those um things you know psychologists have um generated tools that let them put a number on um, a trait like that but many of them are much more difficult to quantify like kindness is really difficult to quantify and people don't really study it right Mm -hmm. um so, so there's a there's a whole sort of um, science of of personality and trying to figure out um, how do these things vary across um, across the population. And in fact, what are the what are the dimensions along which human personalities vary? Right? So, if you just look at the way people interact with each other um, in languages like English, there are about eight thousand words we have that all refer to. A, a slightly different style of behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually, you know, interacting between people or, or um, say, you know, for risk aversion, yeah, you can have people who are reckless or, or cautious or, you know, there's a whole load of, of words that you can think of that all kind of tap into the same construct, right? You can be stubborn or headstrong or obstinate or mule-headed. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, all of those things you can see by looking at them, you're like, okay, well, actually, that's not 20 different things. It's 20 different words that are all kind of tapping into the same dimension of variability. Mm -hmm. So there's been a ton of work done to try and figure out, well, how many dimensions are there? Along how many different Mm -hmm. uh, directions do people vary? And then presumably, I mean, the important thing is that they could be independent, right? So you could be reckless and kind, or reckless and not kind, right? You know, so, and those two things don't, recklessness and kindness don't go along with each other. Um, so there's a huge history of personality psychology trying to figure that out. Um, and there's lots of ways you can chop and change, do this kind of cluster analysis and then end up with these different traits. And then you can say, so say you settle on these, uh, the the most popular ones are what's called the big five yeah, traits. So yeah. it's extroversion, um, 
openness to experience, conscientiousness, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Mm. Um, and each of those captures a, a kind of a dimension um, that, that's recognizable enough. Mm -hmm. um, and usually the way that psychologists will then try to put a number on that is they'll just ask you a bunch of questions, right? So they just do a questionnaire. Um, they don't ask you how extroverted you are, right? Yeah, yeah. They ask yeah. you, you know, how much do you like going to parties? How much do you like to travel? Do you get energized in social situations? And there's a bunch of those things which, um, I mean, those are sort of obvious ones. There's some less obvious ones that you wouldn't necessarily think tap into the same construct, but statistically they correlate with each other. Mm -hmm. Or uh, better put, there's some. there seems to be some latent variable that, that it correlates to all of them. I see. Contributes to all of them. Mm -hmm. Um, so then you can put a number on that, right? So you do a questionnaire, you tot yep. up a score, um, and and then, sorry, to make a long story <laughs> even longer, you finally get back to your question about yep. twins, which is to say, how similar yep. are they, right? Um, and really the question is, how much variation do you see between them compared to how much you see across the whole po population? And they definitely have less variation than um, across the whole population, but not as much less as for a physical trait like I height. I see. So if you measure people's height, and that's right, that's very easy to do. You just get a tape measure and you measure yeah. the height. You've quantified that trait. Um, there is variability between identical twins, but not as much as between two randomly selected people in the population. So in other words, identical twins will tend to be slightly different in height, um, but not exactly the same, even though they have the same genome. Um, for something like personality, what you basically just explained is how psychologists uh, have come up with uh, the analog of a tape measure. Yeah. So they've come up with ways to quantify and put a number on some of these aspects of our behavior and our personality. And there's also variation between twins. And, and it sounds like there's more variation in those personality dimensions yeah. than in something like height. Absolutely right. Yeah. And and a good bit more. Right. Um, and I, I, and it's interesting. So if you think about, okay, well, what could it be that that causes variation in those kinds of, of yeah. um, manifested behaviors? And and really, what those those statistical um, measures are are constructs that are inferring that there's some consistent thing that's contributing to variation in lots of different behaviors. And then the question is, okay, well, what is that, right? So then you're getting to a, a neuroscience question. What could be different between the brains of these people um, that would manifest in, in, in these ways? And really, if you're talking about behavior, um, essentially you're talking about decision-making. Actually, mm -hmm. so if, if, if I say, well, do you want to go to a party tonight? And we talked about your you know, going out later. Um, then, uh, you know, you would decide, you've got a decision to make. Do you want to or not? And you might make that decision differently from me in this instance, but also you might have a pattern of making that decision differently from me, or you might have a pattern of going to parties more than I do, say, um, or a, you might have a pattern of being more cautious about certain things and I might be uh, less risk averse, whatever. So those are the things we call personality traits, but really it's just summing up uh, yeah, the way that you uh, make decisions. Uh, yeah. Decision weights yeah, right? yeah. over many times, over many, many instances. So it's just a kind of a pattern across many contexts. Um, and the question then, you know, so, so that gets us into the science of decision-making. How is it that animals or humans make decisions? What are the parameters that actually feed into that in any given moment? So if we're making a decision, say, there's a, usually there's a bunch of options open to us. Usually we have uncertain, ambiguous information. We don't have complete information. It's not always a right answer. What we're trying to do is optimize 
um, our uh, behavior and the outcomes that we get from it uh, by juggling you know, many, many different sort of parameters at once. And it might be, for example, that there's some opportunities here uh, that could be rewarding, but there's also some threats potentially in the, in the environment. Right? So now I might, in the same environment as you, choose differently if I'm more sensitive to rewards than you are. Right? And there are neural systems that convey reward signals. I might make a different choice if I'm more sensitive to threats than you are. And there are different circuits that convey you know, threat signals and so on. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other kinds of parameters in there, like how confident I have to be in the evidence that I get about what's out in the world before I'm happy to make a decision. And that kind of could manifest in impulsivity, for example, and even recklessness. So there's a lot of sort of neural circuits of, of decision making um, that can vary. And in fact, we know, you know, fr from work in animals where you see these circuits, you can go in, you can tweak them even on the fly in an animal that's trying to make decisions. And you can change the, the weighting of a parameter. You can make the animal more sensitive to rewards or less, um, more impulsive or, or less. Right. So we know a lot about that. And we have in humans then these measures of th that are very broad statistical measures of behavior. What we haven't done yet is, is relate those two things to each other in any direct way and not for want of trying. I think people have done you know hundreds of neuroimaging experiments, for example, um, trying to look for some variation in the brain that correlates with, say, being more extroverted versus less or more mm -hmm. neurotic versus less. There's no shortage of reports that have come out claiming to have found something like that, but they tend to be from you know small studies, um, and they just don't replicate. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there isn't really there, there's nothing in the brain that we could point to at the at the pretty crude scale of resolution that neuroimaging gives you, where we could say you know having a bigger amygdala makes you more neurotic. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just not right. It's, it's the wrong way even to conceive of that relationship actually mm -hmm. it's not big chunks of the brain determining how you know one personality trait versus another that's just a sort of an old-fashioned idea yeah uh, but there may be more subtle tunings in the you know say the reward circuitry the threat circuitry the confidence circuitry um, that don't manifest as you know you can't see it on a brain scan mm -hmm. um, but that would manifest as these different patterns of, of, of behavior now, when you think about what would cause that kind of variation in those circuits, it's the same kind of thing as would cause variation in height. It's the effect of variations in lots and lots of genes, probably, mm -hmm. right, for the most part. So, um, so when we look actually physically at the brains of, of identical twins, now we can get a kind of an intermediate measure um, of the variability at the level of neuroanatomy or neural function. And there we see actually lots of variability. Mm -hmm. So even when identical twins are really young, you know, as soon as we can image them, um, their brains are already different from each other. Mm -hmm. So the outcome of development up to birth has already taken slightly different trajectories. Yeah, yeah. There's, some, there's some variation that we can see. So even prior to, you know, what we would call experience, um, those, those trajectories are already different. And then presumably as they continue on their trajectory through, through their lives, um, that, variability sort of you know continues to increase uh in in ways that reflect slightly different experiences uh, and also reflect the fact that their brains were slightly differently wired to begin with mm -hmm. so if you're learning from experience you're not learning from 
X happening to you, you're learning from how that felt, right? Mm. The experience is not yes. the happening. The yep. experience is in your brain, right? Mm-hmm. If my brain is is wired in a certain way that I I'm I feel rewards more than you do, then I have just had a more rewarding experience than you have, even if objectively it looks like the same thing. Right? Mm-hmm. So um, so then those those sort of initial predispositions that that we might have the, the sort of tuning of those parameters of those different circuits can can continue continue to influence the trajectory of our of our um, development of our mm-hmm. character and behavior and our habits through our lifetimes and you know even even though we often don't have the actual details worked out to account for you know why one twin will have a different personality than their other twin um I want to connect the physical dots here for people. What is the kind of explanation that people can start to think about for what would account for that variation? So if genes make proteins and the proteins do stuff that ultimately builds up to our personalities, when one twin has personality A, maybe they're more extroverted, the other twin's more introverted, at what level should people start thinking about that? Are proteins that, say, work at synapses perhaps different such that one twin has synapses that are a little bit stronger versus yeah, yeah, a little bit yeah. weaker than the other one? Where do we, where do we think about yeah, the physical it, It's a that? super question. And I think you know, a lot of the genetics of personality has been focused on um, the very kind of immediate proteins that carry these kinds of signals I was talking about, like reward signals um, or, or punishment signals or things that, that um, monitor the outcome of uh, behaviors so that we can learn from them, things that um, convey you know goals and drives and the weight of those drives relative to each other. And those are things like neuromodulators, dopamine, serotonin, um, noradrenaline, uh, acetylcholine, and so on. And those um, have receptor proteins and enzymes that make those uh, neuromodulators and um, transporter proteins and things like that, all of which can vary, right? They can have you know slightly different versions between different people. Sometimes it's the protein sequence itself that's a little bit different. Sometimes it's the genetic instructions for how much of that protein to make mm. so the protein could be the same but i might have a little bit less than you have say. yep um and the, you know there's a reason to look there because we know that if we pharmacologically target those proteins then you get changes in behavior so that's why i mean that's what drugs do right you know both uh, a lot of medical um, psychoactive drugs um as well as um you know drugs that people use recreationally you know alcohol and and um you know marijuana and, and um other other um drugs like that can target these kinds of of um receptors right so um it's not a it's not an unreasonable hypothesis to think maybe it's variation in those genes that encode those proteins that's very directly Uh, altering these parameters of of these decision-making circuits and it turns out not to be true that's not that's not when you when you do the genetics of these conditions and you look across uh you know humans and you you say a trait like neuroticism um it doesn't really uh you don't with the genes that come up when you find these these variations in uh, across the whole population ones that are common they don't really um, target, say, or they're not really enriched for like the serotonin pathway, which might have been a, a good one mm. to, to think of. Now, there are very, very rare mutations in those proteins that cause big effects. I see. Um, that can manifest on, on these kinds of behaviors and personality traits. But across the general population, 
those you know variation and those specific things is not particularly enriched. And there's an analogy to make there with, for example, height. Yeah, where. There are single mutations that dramatically affect height, right? They cause dwarfism. But they're probably selected against. They're rapidly, you know, selected against. Um, and there's other ones that cause giantism. And, you know, those are mutations in genes that encode growth factors. I see. Right. So they're really, really proximal uh, in a molecular sense to the phenotype that you're measuring. Right? Um, but for the when you when we look at the genes that have been found, uh, the that is the the genes that harbor variants that are statistically associated with traits like personality ones. Um, they don't tend to be so specific to those pathways. And the only thing you can say about them really is that they're enriched for neurodevelopmental genes. Mm. So, so it changes the way we think about the genetics of or the underlying variability in those personality traits. Rather than saying. Uh, the genes are directly affecting how this thing works at a biochemical level. It's there's this whole trajectory of development that can just go can, can just vary a little bit, and mm-hmm. maybe you know maybe it is that there's collectively you know some more cells, some denser synapses, uh, some differences in the biochemistry, um, uh, you know some differences in the metabolism of those cells. It could mm-hmm. be all kinds yeah, of things, yeah, yeah. right? Um, that are not that not they're not really specific. And so if you look at the effects of the genes, you may have a genetic variant that's associated with one of those personality traits, but it may also be associated with all kinds of other things. Yeah, because maybe it's causing the neurons to burn 2% more ATP and that affects everything. And, yeah, there yeah. can be all kinds of, of, of um, factors that uh, that vary. So, you know, we, we talked about Mendel earlier and he gave this kind of a rosy view, a simple view of genetics where, you know, it's possible to find these traits that are either uh, like this or like that. And there's one gene that explains that difference. And most traits in humans are just not like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not, you know, the genetic causation is just really indirect and it's really cascading actually. And that's especially true for our psychology you know we're talking about the the highest levels of human behavior the most sophisticated cognitive things that we do like social interactions you know navigating those is a hugely um emergent kind of a function or faculty of the mind uh, and the brain and you know the idea that it would be related very directly to how much of one protein or other you make in retrospect is kind of a bit simplistic Interesting. And so, so you mentioned um, neurodevelopmental genes. What would a neurodevelopmental gene be as opposed to a just neural gene? What, what is, yeah, how should yeah. people think well, about so that? Well, so there's a couple different ways to think about it. One is that you have genes that are directly involved in the processes of neural development. So they encode proteins that, say, control cell um, uh, division, or proliferation or migration or the guidance of growing nerves, mm. the kinds of things like where I started my career working on, um, or you know who connects with whom in the brain and that kind of thing. So those are genes where you would say their job is to do is to direct the processes of neural development, and variation in those genes can lead to variation in in how the development plays out. However, development also requires all kinds of other things that those cells do, right? If it requires their cytoskeleton to be normal, it requires uh, the you know certain levels of energy production and, and metabolism and, and all kinds of stuff. So there's another set of genes that you wouldn't look at the proteins that they encode and say that's for doing the process of neural development. 
nevertheless, variation in that protein might affect how neural development goes, right? And, and that's the main sort of majority of these genes is that they're, when you're talking about the effects of mutations, it's a very different lens than the function of the gene is to do X. Mm-hmm. In a normal, in a normative sense, we would say the normal gene uh, is do, doing this job in cells or in the organism, but it relies on all this other stuff. And if you mess up all this other stuff, maybe this guy can't do his job properly or the process just can't happen. Mm. So again, it's really, um, it's sort of irritatingly nonspecific and indirect and, and very unsatisfying. The goal of doing genetics is to figure out this biology. Well, it turns out the biology is just super, super messy uh, in a way that's... It doesn't give you the clean answers you would want. Yeah, to it's yeah. just sort of essentially uninformative yeah (laughs) it's not it's not that we haven't figured it out there's there's no answer there after beyond a certain point i mean the answer for personality traits is interesting in that they seem to reflect how the brain develops as opposed to just how it acutely functions Mm -hmm. that is how it acutely functions is is itself a function of how it developed Mm -hmm. that was something we didn't know before So there's an answer from genetics. It's just that it's a kind of a general answer. It's not a super specific one that we might have been hoping for. I see. And, you know, this starts to um, connect in a little bit to this distinction that I've heard people make between um, neurodevelopmental versus neurodegenerative diseases. And I think some of the things we're talking about with personality there and and neurodevelopmental genes get into... um, you know, thinking about things like autism or schizophrenia and how the aspects of our personality that, um, you know, these are basically what we call them disorders or diseases because the person diagnosed with it is not behaving within, um, within the range of, of human behavior that's conducive to, to living, you know, living a normal life. So how does, how do these neurodevelopmental genes tie into some of these psychiatric conditions? Yeah. So, it's a great question, and you know, you raise the 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 use of the term disorder, um, and essentially, something is a disorder if it's felt as a disorder, mm. uh, and there's there's not really any sort of better threshold, right? Yeah, if someone yeah. in, if someone in a sense is suffering from having a condition, then it's then it's a disorder. Mm-hmm. Right? That's just the 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 way the term is used, and it's not judgmental beyond that. It, yeah, it's yeah. simply saying this is something that is. Um, that this person is suffering from right now in some cases uh say for for something like epilepsy say um you can see there's a physical thing that's happening right Mm -hmm. and it's it's um it's a cause of of danger and risk and ill health uh, and so on so it's not really a gray area it to whether you're calling it a disorder or not for something like autism there's this massive range Mm -hmm. and for some uh you know people with autism they may be completely nonverbal, um, you know, really, really um, severely affected in the sense that they may need full-time care for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the, the the diagnosis has been broadened over recent years to to include people who have you know this um, cluster of traits, which is sort of recognizable, right? As a as a cluster, um, uh, maybe a, a language uh, delay. Um, Social, uh, you know, differences in social um, cognition and interactions, maybe repetitive interests and and a few other things. Um, And so they they sort of uh, exist as a cluster that's recognizable and label labelable. Right. 
the question there, whether you call that a disorder or not, that now you're much more into the realm of it being a disorder just because society is not well set up to cater for those mm-hmm. people, right? So, um, so there's this there's this massive range, right? And somewhere it's a clear medical condition, and others where it's a difference, and uh, it's a difference that has potential functional consequences in the world mm-hmm. but that's a that's very yeah. much a relationship between the person and yeah. the world the person um, may or may not be contented with having that abso- phenotypic absolutely. cluster absolutely yeah so uh, so all of those right across that that range may reflect um differences in the way the brain develops and some of those are uh maybe just uh, sort of general differences in where you fall on the range of these sorts of traits, whereas others may be the outcome of a much more discrete kind of a genetic causation, like a discrete mutation that causes these symptoms. So say a condition like Fragile X syndrome, for example, it's a g- genetic condition caused by mutation in a single gene, um, and it's associated with um, intellectual disability, very high rates of autism, um, higher than normal rates of, of epilepsy, and then a, a, a bunch of other um, non-neural um, related uh, conditions. Okay. So there's a whole bunch of syndromes like that, like Rett syndrome, uh, there's a bunch of 22Q11 deletion syndrome. There's, there's a big long list of um, genetic conditions that are associated with a single mutation that confers very high risk of having this phenotype that gets you one of these diagnoses. Right? Um, and a question has been for psychiatric disorders generally, if you think about them as these known conditions like Rett syndrome or Down syndrome or Fragile X syndrome, um, th- there's these known conditions that are kind of Mendelian, right? They, they follow this sort of simple inheritance of there's a single gene hit that causes the condition. Which, as it happens, that's too simplistic a picture, but we can come back to that. And then there was this big pool of what are called idiopathic cases. Idiopathic just means we don't know the cause of it, right? But um, but we can give somebody a label based on the um, symptoms that they manifest. And it's purely um, the behavioral symptoms of, say, autism or schizophrenia or whatever it is. So they go to a psychiatrist. Psychiatrist will say, okay, I've, I've recognized this cluster of symptoms and we've you know, thought about this and we've come up with this label for it. Um, so it's a... It's a construct, right? And and there's a question: Does it reflect what philosophers call a natural kind? Mm-hmm. Is it is it something that's real in the world that we're recognizing, or are we just trying to impose orderliness on something that's actually a lot fuzzier? Um, and from a genetic point of view, people have thought: Well, maybe you've got these rare conditions that can increase risk of schizophrenia or autism and these symptoms, but but those are different from this common pool. This is the, a real schizophrenia or real autism. It's kind of a hangover from the time of this sort of separation between psychiatry and neurology. Mm. So schizophrenia almost by definition is something that, you know, that has these, these symptoms of you know, paranoia and hallucinations and, and cognitive uh, difficulties and so on that doesn't have an organic cause that explains it. And often that organic cause would say something like syphilis. Right. Mm. So syphilis can manifest with those things. So if somebody came into the clinic, had those symptoms, and you tested them for syphilis and a bunch of other stuff, and they didn't come back positive for that, then they were labeled with schizophrenia. I see. So it's it's a diagnosis of exclusion. Yeah, yeah. And it basically says you you look like this cluster, and it's unexplained. 
So we're going to call it schizophrenia. And oddly, when genetics started coming into the picture, once you got a genetic diagnosis, then it was like, okay, it's not schizophrenia anymore. It has an organic cause that we can recognize, which doesn't quite fit because actually schizophrenia is a genetic condition. It's a highly heritable. Of course, it's going to have some genetic contributors to it. That doesn't mean the person no longer has schizophrenia. They still manifest those symptoms. So, um, so people have started to do a lot more genetics to try and tease this out. And what they're finding is both lots more of these single gene mutations that can cause high risk of some developmental um, neurodevelopmental disorder or um, that manifests with psychiatric or cognitive symptoms. And at the same time, a big, big pool of common genetic variants that contribute to risk uh, more generally. Okay. And the question has been, how do we think about those things? How do we put those together? Or, or are they really separate from each other? Is it really right to think that, you know, on the one hand, we've got cases of, say, autism that are caused by a mutation in Fragile X syndrome or the Rett syndrome gene or whatever, and we put them over here. And then we have other cases that are caused by this accumulation, this accumulated burden of these common variants. And I, and I don't think that's the right way to think of it at all. I think that common um, background, what's called a polygenic background, is really reflecting the robustness of the system and its ability to buffer these mutations that happen. Because many of these mutations that are associated with, say, risk of autism or so on, they may be associated with like a 30% risk, mm. right? But it's highly variable between people who inherit this mutation. Some of them will develop the, uh, the condition, some of them won't. Some of them might develop schizophrenia or ADHD. It turns out the genetics of all these things is really overlapping. From a genetic point of view, the risk is actually really shared across these mm. different categories. So, so you've got genetic risk here, and then you've got outcomes, which are highly variable. And you have to explain why two people with the same mutation, <coughs> excuse me, might end up with very different phenotypes. Hmm. And part of the explanation for that may be that they have a different genetic background. Mm. So one person who has a kind of a high-risk background may be unable to buffer the effects of this mutation during the development of their brain. I see, I see. And, and end up being channeled down the, this route that manifests as autism. Whereas another person who has a, a, you know, a lower burden of these common genetic variants may be able to buffer that insult of, yeah. a, of the big mutation and end up within the, the, the normal sort of uh, t the typical um, cognitive behavioral range. Mm -hmm. right? So, so one, one mutation in one gene in two different individuals amounts to uh, one mutation existing in two different genetic contexts. Exactly. And, and one of them might be able to compensate for whatever um, problem that mutation is causing during the course of development. And in a different genetic context, in a different individual, you have the opposite. Yeah, exactly. And um, which I, I think that kind of model can unite these different strands of looking at this, this big pool of background of common variants and then these single, you know, variants that, that arise. Um, but that's a model, right? You know, that's an, an empirical model and it, it may need to be to be modified as we learn more. Uh, to me, it makes the most the, the most sense. Um, so, so yeah, so we have this, this sort of mystery. And to come back to the neurodevelopmental thing, what the genetics is telling us, when, you've, when you look at either these rare mutations that we're finding more and more of in isolated cases or a few cases, 
and this big pool of, of genes that carry these common variants that contribute to this polygenic background. And, you, you know, so you could ask, well, what kinds of genes are they, right? What, what proteins do they encode, as we talked about, for personality? And again, they're enriched for neurodevelopmental genes very broadly, mm-hmm. very generically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the hope in doing the genetics of, say, schizophrenia was that it might point to very particular biochemical pathways that were disrupted very proximally by these particular genes, say, in dopamine signaling or something. Perfectly good reason to think that because drugs that target the dopaminergic system can act as antipsychotics. In fact, all antipsychotics that we know of that target dopaminergic pathways. And drugs that um, can induce psychosis can also target you know, the, those pathways or glutamatergic pathways and so on. So the pharmacology suggested you know, maybe the genetics would be specific to those kinds of genes. But the answer, again, is no, it's not. There's lots of ways you can get, cause differences in the way the brain develops that ultimately cause it to the, the developing brain to go into this regime of function or, or dysfunction, a kind of a maladaptive regime um, that that we observe as the symptoms of schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, again, you know, it points to neural development as being the cause, but in a really generic, unhelpful kind of a way in that we're not going to, you know, it doesn't suggest, oh, I can target this biochemical pathway with a new drug and, you know, meet this huge uh, unmet need, clinically speaking, because, you know, for a lot of these conditions, they're very, very serious. They have a mm-hmm. huge, huge impact on function. They're hugely, um, you know, detrimental. I mean, schizophrenia is a, a horrendous, uh, you know, condition. And it's not uh, very well treated for many people with it. So there's a big, you know, need to find better ways to treat it, um, or either, you know, coping with it. I, I think there's a huge unmet need just in terms of supports, but also, you know, potential new therapeutics. And the hope was that genetics would point us very immediately towards those pathways. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that has turned out not to be the nature of the relationship between genetic risk and the these emergent conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to dwell a little bit on the fact that a lot of these psychiatric conditions um, are correlated in that, you know, if, if you're likely to get one, you're also at increased risk of getting another one. A lot of times, I think naively, you you wouldn't think that way, right? We, yeah. we have we have separate words for these things. Yeah. There's autism, there's schizophrenia, there's epilepsy. Yeah. Um, it's, it's natural and or very easy to think about them as completely separate. But you seem to be saying that a lot of the same genes that predis- that neurodevelopmental genes that predispose you, if you have a mutation to one of them, can also predispose you to another. Does that start to yeah. connect with what you were saying with like the different genetic context between people? Like one, one mutation in a neurodevelopmental gene might predispose you to autism and schizophrenia, but the full context that mutation is in is going to sort of dictate which way you go. Yeah, so I think there's two elements to that. So first of all... Um uh, it's it's true. Well, first of all, if we think about these things uh, again, are you know are they natural kinds or not? And in terms, even just clinically speaking, um, they overlap a lot, right? I mean, I mentioned earlier that in fragile X syndrome, people have you know may have autism and epilepsy. You mm-hmm. know? So they they they're comorbid in individuals quite a lot. Mm. Um, and you know, it's common to have you know ADHD and schizophrenia or you know those kinds of things. Um, so that's not uncommon at all. And in fact, it's not uncommon for someone to the diagnosis that they have to kind of migrate through their lives. Mm. These aren't necessarily static things. They're descriptors Mm -hmm. of their current state. Um, At the same time, it's also true that the risk for them is clearly overlapping. And you can see that in 
across families. So if you have a sibling with schizophrenia, your risk is about 10%, right? And the, the rate in the population generally is about 1% um, over the lifetime. So, um, but statistically speaking, your risk of having autism is also higher or intellectual disability mm. or even or even epilepsy, right? So, so you can see in, uh, yeah, in different people that the, the risk of these things is sort of globally shared. And then you can ask a more specific question as you just did. Imagine two people with the same mutation, one of whom may you know, develop autism, the other may develop schizophrenia. And there, there may be an explanation that's partly due to the genetic background that they have that's different. Mm-hmm. You know, they, you may have a, another mutation here or just a, um, a, a background that buffers it better you know, or worse, right? Or, or, or differently. Differently, yeah. Right? But even beyond that, uh, there's also some variability, which is just this stochastic developmental variation that we were talking about earlier. So mm-hmm. even monozygotic twins who have these high-risk mutations and obviously have the same polygenic background can manifest as you know autism or not, yeah, um, ADHD or epilepsy, yeah, uh, and really you know really quite um, dichotomous um, outcomes. That for me you know just highlights the fact that that what is being inherited there is a risk or a probability of being channeled into one of these eventual phenotypes. Yeah. You're not inheriting the phenotype. Uh, you're not inheriting a disorder. It's, it's a risk. And how that plays out is going to vary mm-hmm. even between genetically identical individuals in the same way as we yeah. talked about for handedness. Yeah. And I think you know it, it is really helpful to think about these, as you said before, as uh, trajectories, not to think about them as sort of static, static things that aren't changing. And I, I love the analogy that you used earlier. I think of uh, you know the marble game, where you drop the marble in one spot with the pegs at the top, and it goes down. And even if you drop it at the same spot with the same force every yeah. time, it's going to take a different path each time. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, that's um, there's a sort of an inevitability to that. It's not a um, you know, I was talking about earlier how it's difficult to prove that that's the case, right? Yeah. It's difficult to say because the comeback is always um, something like, "Well, you're saying this is stochastic developmental variation, but maybe it's something from outside the animal, yeah, uh, or the or or the person. Maybe it's slow, you know, maybe one twin was on the top in the womb or something like that, right? Um, and you can't exclude it, right? So it's you know, when you say it's noise, that's really just you. That's just you putting a label on your ignorance, mm. uh, we, which is a fair point, right? Up to a point. Up to a point. Yeah. Um, if you go looking for these kinds of variables and you never find anything, then eventually that, you got to go. Well, maybe there's yeah, nothing to find. Exactly. And the other thing is that even you can see at the neuroanatomical level this kind of variability played out. Yeah. Right. So if we think that the 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 way the brain works reflects its structure um then we can look directly at the structure and see you know what there's noise here that's nothing to do with from outside the organism and the the best place to do that is in experimental organisms where you can see the same thing over and over and over again within the same animal so hearkening back to my work in fruit flies we were looking at um in fruit fly embryos they have these uh, abdominal segments so the larva will crawl around right so they have a uh, muscles in their body wall and each segment has exactly the same muscles. Mm-hmm. It's an array of 30 muscles. That we, they have numbers, right? So we can identify them. They're innervated by about 40 different motor neurons coming from the nerve cord. Again, we know the names of all of them. When we can see the same one on two sides of the animal for like eight segments at a time, right? Um, and what we find is that ordinarily, if there's no mutations around, 
you know, this this motor neuron here will, with 100% accuracy, make its way out of the nerve root along this branch, detach from the nerve, and innervate muscle six. But when you start to add mutations that affect some of the information it needs to get there, then it may only be able to do that 30% of the time, mm. right? But when it does, it makes it perfectly fine. Yeah. So what you end up with is a, a, a clear expression of a probabilistic relationship on a single cell level re with repeated observations in the same animal. And there, I think you just have to say, well, that's, that's just stochastic yes. developmental yes. variation yeah. and it can't be anything else. And that's what, if that's what we're talking about, that's it. Um, and so in, and, and you, you can see that, you know, in mammalian brains, you can see that manifested in sort of more statistical variability. But even there, you can get very di dichotomous outcomes. The, the, the reason why is because uh, neural development, uh, especially, is very contingent on prior processes having happened properly at the right time. Yeah. Right. So, so the, the developing brain has to coordinate all these processes, cell migration and, uh, and, and proliferation and axon extension, and it has to connect, you know, the, the, the axons from here have to reach this region, you know, and the, their targets need to be there and for them to connect with. Um, so there's a really interesting example, which is in the formation of the um, the connections between the two hemispheres mm. of the brain, which is a big tract, has millions and millions of axons in it, called the corpus callosum. Uh, means the tough body, because well, I presume it's tough to cut through. <laughs> um, and so ordinarily, that forms just fine. And it, the way it forms in embryonic development is that the two hemispheres, uh, which are, you know, the neurons here are, are dividing separately from the ones on the other side, they have to fuse. There's a tiny little bridge of cells that fuses the two hemispheres and um, at a very particular point in embryonic development. And then if that f happens fine, then some pioneer axons, nerve fibers, will grow from one hemisphere to the next across this little bridge. And if they make it across, then everybody else can go across. But if this little bridge doesn't form, those pioneer axons can't get across at that particular point of development. And then nobody gets across. As the brain grows bigger and bigger and bigger, the two hemispheres remain disconnected from each other. So a little bit of noise, a little variation in gene expression right here uh, at this point can lead to this massive outcome where, you know, you have disconnected hemispheres of, of the brain. And again, you can see that's a, a you can inherit a genetic risk for that happening. And in lines of mice, for example, where this has been studied a lot, you can have different lines of mice with different mutations where the probability of forming the corpus callosum is maybe 30% or 40% or 50%. Again, when you breed those animals, the ones that either did or didn't make a corpus callosum, and they're all genetically identical, their offspring, it's also going to be 30%, 70%. doesn't matter whether their parents actually have the thing or not. Hmm. The risk is what's uh, is what's transmitted. So, um, so yeah, you can get this this relationship between uh, genotype and phenotype that is absolutely an expression of the trajectory that the animal followed and the the way that that they the tra the trajectory that they happen to follow, and that happenstance it, it, sometimes there's a bit of chance to it, um, and it can make a big difference in the outcome. One of um I mean, we've been talking about diseases and disorders um, and things going wrong a fair amount, but it's also really interesting just to think about um, 
normal, if sometimes unusual, types of, of phenotypic variation in terms of brain stuff, like perception stuff and cognition stuff um, among people. Um, one way that we vary is the way that we perceive the world. So, and a lot of what our sensory systems are doing just to set this up for people is, um, you know, we've got these different sensory, sensory channels. Um, we see with our eyes, we hear with our ears and so forth. And they are parsing the incoming sensory data into distinct entities that we can then, you know, manipulate and perform operations on, right? So our visual system is parsing uh, a pattern of electrical activity that comes from photons hitting the retina into objects. Yeah. Um, our hearing system is doing that, that to create the phonemes that compose our languages. Um, when we think about perceptual variation and variation in how the sensory systems from individual to individual are parsing the world, um, it starts to get really interesting. And I, I know that you've, you've um, studied some visual stuff before. Yeah. Um, I'm colorblind, for example. So uh -huh. my sensory system is set up such that like, I'm not parsing yeah. uh, the world into as many colors as other people are. People see more colors um, than, than the average person as well. And you get interesting phenomena like synesthesia. Yeah. So when we think about this sort of perceptual variation and where that comes from neurodevelopmentally, yeah. how do we start to think about that? Yeah, yeah. So it's... It Super fascinating um, sort of area and one that I think is underappreciated, the amount of variation that we have in literally how we see the world mm -hmm. and, or, or perceive the world through all of our um, all of our senses. And, you know, people will be familiar with things like colorblindness. Um, that's a well-known one. They might be familiar with things like being able to taste certain things or not, mm -hmm. you know, and some mm -hmm. people find the taste of some things really disgusting and other people can't taste it at all. Um, and some of those um, – so, so – you know, perception starts with some uh, receptor that detects something out in the world. And that might be uh, receptors that detect, say, uh, light of a certain frequency and, and compare them to allow us to kind of label things as with colors, right? And if you have a mutation in a, a gene that encodes that protein, um, then you you don't have that channel, basically, of, of color perception or, let's say, just frequency particular frequency range perception that you don't you can't make the comparison because the receptor is just not there um, and similarly for things that you taste or smell you may not have the receptor protein that allows you to bind this particular chemical and so you just can't detect it you're completely oblivious to it right uh, and of course you know across different species the receptors that they have determine their what we call their sensorium. What it is, the, basically, the sensory world that they're living in mm -hmm. is is completely different between different species. And you know, you may have seen things like, like these sort of um, uh, gener generations of of pictures of what it's like to be a bee or a bird, or the kinds of colors that they see in flowers mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and things like that. But. So, but there's also just variation within uh, within species and, and and including within us. And so you have this one class of things which are pretty clear, like genetic conditions. There's a there there's a mutation in this gene that encodes this receptor, and that explains the variation in, in ultimately in perception. Mm -hmm. That would be like my color blindness. Absolutely, yeah. But of course, perception is not just sensation. You know, you refer to it. We, we have to infer what's out in the world. We have to make sense of it in a way that we can then um, capitalize on. And so in, in visual system, we're, um, we're doing feature segmentation, object segmentation, um, and, uh, and object recognition. And the recognition part uh, depends on our memory, right? It's not a passive thing that mm -hmm. that's happening. When I'm recognizing something here, say, you know, I came into the office and I recognize this as a chair and this as a table, part of that 
process is that I have a history of tables and chairs. I know what they are. I know what I can do with them. I know what they're for. And I bring all of that to the process of, of perception. So I'm linking the incoming signals to my stored knowledge, to my concept of tables and chairs. And, I, uh, and, and that uh, then enables me to navigate through the world more effectively and adaptively. And, and interestingly, there are some variations that we see in those higher order kinds of processes of perception in, in concept formation or linking, uh, linking to memory. So the, the linking to memory one is a little easier maybe to, to think of. But so when we're processing objects in the world, we're doing that in a way that is sort of dependent on the salience of those things. So mm -hmm. lots of things that we don't really care about much. We don't even process them as an object, right? I mean... The side of that wall is is effectively an object, but I'm not thinking of it in that way. Right? Yeah, yeah. So one of the things we're really interested in is other people, especially people's faces. Right. So we're highly, highly social, hypersocial species, um, and being able to recognize people from their faces is a perceptual skill. And it, it what it involves is the feature segmentation, uh, understanding, sort of mapping where the features are, and then referring to a kind of a memory store to say yep that's that's nick that's whoever it is right um and some people just can't do that right? there's a condition called face blindness or prosopagnosia uh, which was initially described as um by people like oliver sacks for example as a, an acquired condition due to some kind of a lesion so there's part of the brain that really specializes for um detecting and processing faces and if you lesion that part of the brain you just won't be able to do it you can see all the bits uh, it's not like you can't see the eye and the nose and the features. You just can't link that to your memory of of, um, of who the person might be. Right? So there's just a, a defect there. But there's also a congenital form of that. Mm. It also runs in families, um, and it's much more common. You know, maybe as many as one percent of people yeah. just can't do that. Um, and there's also the natural variation. We all know people who are just, they can do it, but they're not nearly as good as... Absolutely, absolutely. So there's a range, yeah. all right? And then there's people who have a discrete kind of thing where we could say within a family, we could track this person has it and that person doesn't yeah. and this person does. So, um, and again, you know, that's like variation in height versus dwarfism. You know, there's a discrete kind of a form or variation in intelligence versus intellectual disability. Yeah, yeah. So there can be two kinds of genetics happening at the same time. Um, and there's a parallel in, in, in music, actually, in, in tune deafness, where mm. people can hear the notes of a tune, but they can't really link it to um, a stored memory of, of, say, a melody, mm -hmm. even a, a, maybe a one that they've heard before or one that they're hearing for the first time. But even people, most people hearing one for the first time very rapidly develop a short-term memory of, of the way a melody should go and can detect whether a note is out of place, for example. Um, and there's a whole bunch of people who have this tune deafness. It's often called, called tone deafness, but it's they, they can hear the tones just fine. They can discriminate between tones, no problem. It's just linking this overarching kind of uh, con it's almost a conceptual kind of a thing, mm -hmm. right? So, um, so there's a bunch of variation like that. Again, this is a, that's a, a genetic, uh, you know, uh, difference at least. Um, 
and then you get to to so so there what you're doing is you're having a difficulty linking particular perceptual information to the concept of something or a broader kind of uh, um, schema, if you will, of, of something, right? So when I see your face, I, I'm not seeing the individual elements. I, I'm developing a, a schema of the overall way they're related to each other, right? And so our knowledge of things naturally uh, entails their properties. In fact, it, it almost only entails their properties. There's, not, there's nothing else to know about a thing than the properties that it has, it's the relation. So this table has the properties of of hardness and being about this so taking up this much space and being something I can put things on and and so on, right? Um, now, when it comes to some kinds of percepts, it seems that some people with this condition synesthesia tack on some extra um, attributes mm. of those particular things, and sometimes that's. Um, a very kind of a florid perceptual experience that they're having right in the moment. So for some people, for example, they, they sounds will produce a color percept. So their, mm -hmm. their auditory information triggers in their brain, not just the experience of the sound, but it triggers an additional experience. Mm -hmm. It might be a, a cloud or, a, or a, mm -hmm. some sort of visual shape. And when they, just out of curiosity, when they describe the phenomenology of this, do they tend to, do they, do they describe it as like the room is literally in, like filled with blue light or is it more of like a mental imagery thing or how, how does that yeah so it varies so yeah. some of them will literally experience the thing out in the world and they could point to it and say there's a pink cloud there when <laughs> i heard when you know when i when i heard the cutlery jingling in the drawer behind me i saw a pink cloud appear right there hmm. right um and uh and others may you know they may see little flashes of, of light they don't tend to be very complex kind of phenomena it's not mm -hmm. like being on lsd where you're seeing you know people or objects or stuff like that it's it's tend to be simple sort of yeah. uh, often you know sometimes geometric kind of little things objects individual yeah. um individual yeah. experience so it's not interfering with their ability to behave and act in the world but it is a genuine sensory percept of some kind yeah it's a it's a a, a vivid um sensory percept in the moment right uh, the the interesting thing about it is it tends to be really specifically paired mm. with so when I, I you know if i heard cutlery again jangling i'd see that pink cloud again i wouldn't see something else right mm -hmm. so so there tend to be these really specific pairings between sounds you know for people with musical synesthesia it's, it might be particular notes have particular sounds or the key of the instrument or the timbre or something like that 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 is almost kind of color coded in that sense. Um, it does, color is an is a, a frequent percept that's a sort of additionally experienced, but it can be other things. You can have sounds as a, an extra percept. You can have smells, um, tastes, uh, and so on that 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 happen. So, so there's that kind of um, manifestation which we call projector synesthetes in the sense that they're it's clearly an internally generated percept but the experience of it is in a sense projected out into the world right and really what that reveals is actually all of our experience is a projection out in, into the world right um, but there's another sort of a set of people who don't necessarily have that kind of florid vivid percept but they have a very strong knowledge that the attribute of the thing that you're talking about has a certain characteristic mm. and the most common ones of those are people who have colored alphabets i see so they may you know if they're looking at, at at letters on a page 
some some people will actually see them as colored. So A may be red, B may be blue, C may be green, whatever, and they'll actually see that. For other people, they just know it, right? So they know that that's an attribute of that thing just as much as uh, they know that the, at, that the letter A uh, visually is associated with the sound A, mm-hmm. right? So that's part of the schema of the letter A. And, and another attribute that it has is that it has a color. And that color will be very, usually quite idiosyncratic, the, the sort of colors that people have for their for their alphabets, but stable for that person, often completely stable through their lifetime. And many of them will say this, it always had that, I didn't, they, they didn't even realize other people didn't have a color for, you know, letters of the alphabet or numbers or um, didn't think of months of the months of the year as being, you know, having a spatial location or, um, or, or whatever it is. So, um, so it's an interesting link between the processes of perception that naturally involve conceptual categorization and the idea that that entails um, a schema of the attributes of an object that make it that thing for you. Uh, and, and that somehow in people with synesthesia, they're adding in this extra attribute. And so the question that is, why? why? And um, so it is a heritable condition, uh, you know, runs in families, sometimes in a way that looks like uh, it might even be caused by mutations in a, a single gene. But mm. the genetics is, is really um, uh, still unknown, although there are people working on it. Um, but it, it clearly seems to be neurodevelopmental in the sense that these or developmental in origin, it like, you know, these people say they've always had it. Um, and the way we think about it is that there's maybe some kind of cross wiring between streams of processing in the brain that normally are run separately from each other. So those might be between uh, auditory and visual stimuli, for example, where the auditory pathway normally runs like this. But in people with synesthesia, maybe it just literally anatomically cross connects and drives the visual pathway. Mm. So when you hear something, now you're 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 processing the sound as normal, but you also have to your brain has to interpret this extra activity. And ordinarily, if it's in the visual pathway, in your experience, that's been driven by red things, say. And so now your brain goes, oh, that's red. And then so either you're you're having that experience right now, um, and and a vivid percept, or even if it was like that, even if that's not happening anymore. The fact that it was happening in your experience as you were learning, say, the alphabet means that the colors are now part of your concept, even though you don't see them out there. You know that they're part of that attribute of that object. Yeah. And what's really interesting to think about when it comes to synesthesia is, um, again, this is a, a, an example where the natural inclination I think people have is to, is to is to think some people have synesthesia and in those people, they're... Um, sensory channels have crosstalk between them, mm-hmm. but I don't have it and that doesn't happen with me. But it's it's really a matter of degree because when you think about synesthesia in particular, but also just perception in general, and that much of our perception is coming from this intertwined nature of these different sensory channels. So um, like when I'm watching you talk right now, right? I'm I'm my perception is being driven just as much by the visual signal of your lips moving as it is the sound waves going into my ear. Yeah. So yeah. then you get things like the McGurk effect. Yeah, so absolutely. What does this start to tell us about the nature of perception in terms of this sort of cross modality that's always there? Yeah. So, so I want to push back a little bit on the idea that that you know synesthesia is a continuum because actually uh, it it is the case I think that some people really have it and some people really don't. Um, and even within individual families, you can see um, you, you can see that kind of segregation. So I think 
but it's also absolutely true that we're all doing multi-sensory integration mm-hmm. all the time, right? Uh, and you referred to, you know, lip reading, which is something that we do uh, often, you know, quite subconsciously, but you can manipulate it by, you know, playing these videos where there's a mismatch between the lips moving and the audio that's played. Mm-hmm. And then, as you said, this McGurk effect, people will hear um, a kind of a, a, a phoneme that's sort of in the middle uh, of, of uh, that interpretation. So, so what's happening is that there's a um, there, there's information from the visual system about the way the lips are moving that's giving a, an expectation mm. of what the auditory system signal should be interpreted as, and really that highlights a completely general fact about perception, which is it's it's very much driven by a comparison between our top-down expectations of what should be in the world and our incoming information. So we're not just passively driven by incoming signals. We are actively making sense of the world, and we're using all our past experience to do that. And sometimes the most obvious way is that I have an expectation right now that everything I'm looking at in the scene here is going to continue to exist for the next moment. right? And if something suddenly disappeared, I'd be surprised. And that's good. That's my brain saying, hey, that's something you should pay attention to. Something has changed in the scene. Um, you should be you should be aware of that. So it's setting up an expectation, and that expectation may be sort of violently uh, you know, um, disrupted uh, by the incoming information. Or it may be just, uh, you know, I may have an expectation about other things like the fact that in the world, generally, light tends to come from above. So I kind of have a baseline prior of, the way things tend to be illuminated and that helps me infer what's an object and what isn't and that can lead to these sorts of optical illusions and so on so we're our you know our systems are wired in such a way that we f- we form these expectations through experience um, or some innate ones um, and then they can be uh, they can be tweaked right they can be taken advantage of and we can be fooled um, into you know th- seeing something as say brighter than it is or further away than it actually or bigger than it, it actually is because our brain is saying it's further away, uh, but it, you know it's an image that's been manipulated or something like that. So, um, so yeah, perception is very much a two-way street. It's us actively making sense of our uh, incoming sensory information in the light of these expectations that we that we have built up that we're constantly modulating. Because the, what happens with perception is we compare it to the model that we have of the world, and then we update the model. And that's now our expectations for the next moment of perception. So, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about, you know, how genes and randomness and environmental factors all come together to influence the, the developmental trajectories that we take as, as our organism, as our bodies are constructed, um, ultimately to create who we are and, and how we behave. Um, we've talked about how people vary in terms of how they see the world, how they perceive the world, how they act in the world, um, ways that that can go wrong, and just the natural variation that we see from person to person. When you start to think about, you know, and, and a lot of what we're talking about, right, when we're talking about variation in personalities, variation um, between um, so-called, you know, normal cognitive phenotypes and, uh, you know, comparing those to things like having a psychiatric condition that is problematic, like schizophrenia, say. Um, I think before you mentioned something that a lot of this kind of really boils down to differences in um, decision-making yeah. and how the brain is performing that kind of operation and, you know, the pattern by which um, you and I differ um, in how we make decisions is going to account for a lot of how we differ in terms of our personality. 
when we think about decision making, when we think about personality and, and a lot of the stuff that we've been touching on, where does a concept like agency come into this? Is yeah. there really agency or is this uh, just something we're kind of imposing yeah. imposing on, on the brain? Yeah, yeah. It's such an interesting question and something I'm, I'm working on at the moment. And, it, you know, it comes up when we, if you say, you know, say we look at, at, at variation in personality traits, like you said, which, which basically are patterns of decision making. Um, and if it's the case, as I've, you know, arguing that there's some genetic contribution to that variance and there's some developmental contribution to it which together make up what we would call nature Mm -hmm. well i didn't choose any of that you know i come pre-wired a certain way um so you know i'm constrained in my choices so if we're thinking about agency and even you know the philosophical um issue of free will then the question is, how free am I if I'm sort of subject to these prior causes that I didn't choose? Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, this is the same problem if it's environment that's causing you to be a certain way. If it was your upbringing, um, it, it's no better, really. You know, it can be just as deterministic in that in that view. So the way I think about that is that is to think of, yeah, yeah, we're not blank slates. We do come with these innate predispositions, which is good because they're really adaptive. <laughs> um, you know, every species has innate predispositions. So Actually, in the first instance, we have predispositions just by virtue of being human beings. Mm-hmm. People don't get so hung up about those, oddly, even though they vastly constrain our behavior much, much more than the little subtle variations that we call personality. Um, but the people tend to be more worried about being constrained to behave like themselves than being constrained in the same way that everybody else is by virtue of being a human. But anyway, so there's a set of constraints that we are just our evolved human nature. And then we have our individual natures, which are variations on that theme. Um, And then, you know, the question is, how does that actually manifest through our lives? And again, it comes back to this idea of a trajectory. So if you think about, you know, personality constructs like extroversion and neuroticism and so on, you can think about them in a way like you could say, okay, I I got 10 people in this given situation and I know this person's profile is like A A, and this person's profile is like B and and C and so on. And so this person's going to do that. This person's going to do that. And that's just, they're just woeful for predicting actual behavior of actual individuals in actual uh, contexts, right? They're they're more like descriptions of climate than Mm. predictions of the weather at any given moment. Mm. So it's true, it's rainy in Ireland generally. It was not raining right now. (laughs) So so really what they are is they're they're setting some some baselines for these different um, kinds of uh, decision-making parameters, but those are really low-level kinds of things. And as we go through life, we actually just adapt to the world, right? We're learning from our experience, what's out in the world, what what's rewarding for us, what are the experiences I like to do, what am I gonna, how am I gonna craft my environment and so on. We're agents in that process. And that process feeds back onto our habits, right? So it's not the case that uh, we're just sort of passive in this process. We have our pre-wired things and then experiences happen to us and shape us. And we're just being molded by things out in the world we're really active agents in that process. We're molding our own uh, habits and our own character. Character is just a description of habits, really, of ways of behaving, but at a broader level, you know, uh, than, you know, being extroverted. They're more specific than that. Um, But so, so I like to think of character as emerging through time in a way that is something that is not just antecedent causes that we didn't have any involvement in. We're very much involved in that 
process. Um, now, we could be more or less um, uh, sort of aware of our involvement in that process and trying to control it in particular ways, right? So this gets into a whole area of um, moral philosophy, really. And it goes back to people like Aristotle and Cicero. Um, and Cicero in particular had interesting things to say about this. In fact, in, in some letters he wrote to his son, which sound remarkably modern these days, you read them there, where his son was off at basically a university in, in Greece studying with some philosophers in Greece. And Cicero, the Roman statesman, was was sending him some letters, kind of fatherly advice um, on you know what, what are good ways to behave, live the good life, as it were. Um, and, and so he talks about how our character emerges, and he identifies four factors, which are very much the factors that I've been talking about. So one is general human nature. The others are individual nature. Uh, the other is events. And in, in that, he included chance sort of stuff as well, uh, but experience. And then the fourth is our own decisions, right? The, the cumulative effect of our own decisions that feed back onto ourselves. And actually, the, the crafting of ourselves through our cognitive and social development is something that we are doing, right? We're not just passively being shaped by that. So... Um, so that's one angle to the question of, of agency and, and free will that I think can incorporate this idea of genetic um, genetic variation and innate predispositions without leaving you feeling like you're an automaton that's just tuned a certain way, uh, then you had no hand in that process whatsoever. Interesting. And, you know, when you said, you know, when you, when you refer to things like human nature, what I heard you say is that, you know, what, what is human nature? It's the set of hard constraints that are universal to all human beings that make us behave like humans rather than some other type of organism. Yeah. Within that, there's variation from individual to individual. Absolutely. But what are some of those constraints? In other words, what is the essence of human nature in your view? Yeah, well, I mean, so again, when you're asking that question, you typically, what you're really asking is a, is kind of a comparison, right? So what is it, for example, that's different about human nature versus chimp nature? Mm -hmm. Uh, that's a different question from what's different between human nature and a fruit fly. Mm -hmm. okay. So so there's lots of things that you would say. So if you were uh, David Attenborough, say, <laughs> right, and you were doing a nature program on these strange creatures called humans, there's some descriptors that you would use in a kind of a zoological sense, right, where you could say, well, they're bipedal and they're diurnal. They move about during the day. They're gregarious and they live in these groups. And sorry, I'm slipping into an Attenborough accent. Uh, <laughs> and they... And they um, uh, you know, and they have these sort of dominance uh, relationships, and they have sex differences in in, in behavior. Um, they they're you know monogamous more or less, which is a which is actually rare in in many animals. You know, most are not. Um, they they're both in you know both parents are involved in in parenting, um, and and then there's a whole bunch of other things where you could say, okay, those are, are sort of you know on the behavioral side, but then on the there's a, a bunch of behavioral abilities or cognitive abilities, which are actually very much linked to what our bodies can do as well. So, you know, the the evolution of our brains is very much linked to the evolution of our, our fingers and hands and the, the incredible dexterity that we have, much more than any other animal. Um, the fact that we can throw, that we can run long distance. Uh, you know, the, all of those are part of our ecology, the niche that we're in, that we, um, that we uh, inhabit, that our cognitive uh, and behavioral traits are adapted to. Of course, the difference with human beings is that we develop this amazing cognitive ability to craft our own environments. 
um, and, and you know, through the evolution of culture and language, somehow we sort of transcended the, the typical constraints of most species in that we can craft our environments much more than any other species can, so much that we've shaped the entire world. Um, and, and so the, there are limits to just a biological description of what human nature is like, because part of that biological description is the capacity for culture and language and cumulative learning, which manifests then obviously as our, as our cultural um, things, which, which in turn constrain the behaviors that we have because we have evolved uh, under the constraints of pro-social cooperative behavior. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's competition within that. But if we hadn't evolved those pro-social kind of tendencies, we never would have evolved culture and civilization and everything else that goes with it. So, so there's a yeah, there's a really interesting sort of uh, relationship there between the biological nature that enables the culture that feeds back onto uh, the constraints that that um, you know all of us are are guided by in, in our everyday behavior. Yeah, no, it's a, there's almost an analogy there um, with the brain itself, right? You have a lot of these feed forward systems, but then there's these there's this hierarchy of uh, circuits and networks in the brain with a lot of feedback to each level. And, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, you can think of our behavior, we talked about it as decision making. And, you you know, the simplest way to think of decision making is, you know, do I want coffee or tea? Should I go left or right? You know, it's just sort of binary things, right? But most of our action is not like that at all. We're in, a, you know, very complex situations that we have to navigate. So really, it's an optimization problem. And, when you're doing an optimization problem, you've got some immediate kind of goals and pressures and drives and so on, but you may have some longer term goals and drives that these ones might conflict with. So you might be, you know, uh, hungry and want to eat something, but you might also be on a diet, uh, and so because you want to lose weight, so you've got a longer term goal um, that, and the short term goals are then nested within that, right? And so what what we think happens is that those you know goals are kind of a over different time frames may be uh, mediated by the actions of different parts of the brain represented by those so and and each part of the brain may be trying to sort of satisfy its constraints at a given moment but that you can get this top-down uh, information where the the bit that has the long-term goal of being on a diet uh, or losing weight is constraining the actions of the bit that controls hunger and eating and appetite behavior and so on. And so that's a simple example, but you can imagine the nested, nested, nested ones uh, and, and how that goes on. And it's really, you know, expands, of course, for humans, the time horizon over which we think mm -hmm. is, well, it can be centuries, you know, but in our own lives, it's, it's years or decades um, for a lot of our decisions. And so we make policy decisions and commitments that then constrain our behavior on a daily basis. So say we decide to go to college. Well, then when you wake up in the morning on Tuesday morning, you don't have to decide then what you're going to do that day. College is on, you're going to college. So um, yeah, so that that kind of hierarchy of goals over different time frames, I think is really important. And like with the perceptual stuff, it illustrates this top-down endogenously active kind of control. Um, that, I mean, really the brain is a part of a control system to, to, to most adaptively meet all of these different um, goals and drives that we have. Um, well, Kevin, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, we covered a lot 
And I think this is a, a really fun episode um, that ties into a lot of other episodes that I've done. But this one ties a lot of different things together in a really interesting way. Do you want to take a minute to describe um, some of the work that you've done, books that you've published, and maybe stuff that's upcoming for people? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I have a you know published on lots of strangely lots of different areas over my career, from you know neural development to synesthesia and psychiatric genetics and stuff like that um you know there's, so there's a bunch of academic articles there um the stuff that's more accessible for people would be um, a recent book innate um which is about a lot of the topics that we just discussed so that came out in 2018 um i'm working on another one now which is called agents um and the subtitle is how how life evolved the power to choose so that's really about these questions of of you know free will and and agency uh, but but starting very much with a, a thinking about well what what does it even mean for an organism to cause something or do something how does how does that mm. even happen and going very much back to the the origin of life to try and understand uh, how it can be that an organism even as simple as a bacterium can have some causal power in the world be organized in a certain way as a kind of a an instance of this historical trajectory of of, of life um so that should be out next year and then i also have a blog called the wiring the brain blog where i discuss and write about a lot of this and um i'm on twitter on at wiring the brain all right well dr kevin mitchell thank you for your time great thanks very much 